though if you like to use this as a cure for insomnia i believe that we could get a dual acceptance by uh the fda on that if if we can start writing prescriptions is you're having insomnia just listen to the personal wellness coach for a while should be fine podcasts we've got podcasts they can listen to yeah yeah and listen to our melodious voices droning on about drivel for two hours it should put anyone to sleep Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, Welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. uh, Together, we are bald. Together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and and Mm -hmm. bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to you the dated yourself this tape will destruct your podcast tape is about to self-destruct that's why you can't find the tape in it anymore <laughs> it already has self-destructed because it's too old right uh, and uh, the information that we do present in this podcast we get from sources we think are very reliable but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else we just do the best we can the information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. Well, there's a couple of people that have sent us questions at Jeff and Jake. At, well, not Jeff and Jeff at TPWC.com and Jake at TPWC.com. And we probably ought to address those. Okay. Which one do you want to hit? Let's see. Realistic returns. Is that okay? Oh, man. I wanted to do Yeah, you can do that one. That's You fine. can do it if you want to. That's all right. Yeah, okay. Uh, you go ahead. Well, we've seen some amazingly high returns over the last year in, the, in anybody's portfolio. Uh, I don't uh, care unless, where. Unless you sold at the bottom. Right. When are we going to see realistic returns? drop back to realistic returns. It's going to happen. It may take a couple of years, but it's going to happen. Remember that what we talk about realistic returns, we're talking about looking over a 20, 30, even a 40-year period and say, what's the average annual rate of return in the S&P 500 during that period of time? And after you figure in inflation, if you, and inflation varies a lot, so take the inflation out of it. If you get 5% from the S&P 500 over a really long period of time on an average annual rate of return, you're doing really well. 7% is the high is is a high 5% is is median occasionally you have long periods of time when it's only 4%. So realistic returns actually only show up in long-term averages. And I I'll tell you something that's a little disappointing. It's going to make some people unhappy to hear it, but it's real. When we've had unusually high returns for a couple of years, 
it's followed by periods with unusually low returns. That's just reality. I mean, the stock market is, it doesn't have a lot of room. Well, earnings continue to go up. And as long as earnings continue to go up, the stock market can rise and be fairly priced. But there's a limit. I mean, if you're already, if the stock market is dramatically undervalued as it was a year ago, then it has lots of room to rise to get up to normal, to, to a reasonable value. And so we've seen some tremendous returns. Now, this, this, is, stock, this is it, the nature it, of how averages work. You, if you have high returns for a while and the long-term average is lower than that, it's because there's also low returns that happen. There's even a rule for that. It's called reversion to the mean, which means you feel really mean because you get low returns for a long time. But we, it's going to happen. You'll see lower return, lower annual returns coming up over the next several years. Uh, Vanguard uh, and other places are forecasting four to five percent returns over the next five to ten years in the S and P five hundred, simply because it's been priced so high, and that's just reality. Now, is that certainty? No. Could could we get higher returns in the future? Yes, we could. We could see a rise in productivity and a rise in in profitability by S&P 500 companies and it continued to go up. On the other hand, we could see something go wrong and there's a, there's a host of things that can go wrong. And the one that's likely to bite us and go wrong and cause returns to fall is something we don't know by definition. I, I'm going to come at this from a completely different angle, if you don't mind, because you just nailed it all. That was all correct. But this is the thing that I think is like the simplest version of this is that we generally don't see normal returns, which sounds almost like I just contradicted myself. Why do they call it normal if you don't see it very often? Wouldn't that be abnormal if you don't see it very often? Because the normal return is the average. And generally speaking, it's pretty rare to have a mediocre, okay, it's all right, nothing big, nothing small year. Usually you have it up or down. And that's what makes the normal. It'd be really nice if, if you just saw a 7% return year after year after year. That would be the normal historical returns of the S&P 500 going way back after you pull inflation out. In any given year, it, it's only like, four or 5% of the years going back actually had that as their return. So the normal return is the abnormal thing. Uh, so people have asked me, people were asking me this when, when the market was down, when should we expect to see normal returns again? And our response then was the same as it was just now. After you've had several years, prolonged years of negative returns, you tend to have years of really, really positive returns. It's just called reversion to the mean. We tend to go back to that average. And when you look at the long term, it makes sense. It's kind of like democracy. If you look at any given year's headlines about what's happening in politics, you're going to find the same thing going back to the beginning of our nation. Nobody's happy with what Congress is doing, and nobody's really that happy with how the president is dealing with what Congress is doing. But somehow, on average, we get it right. And we see these big pendulum swings where one side's in control and they do a bunch of stuff and then the other side gets in control and they do the opposite stuff. Well, this is the normal again. This is where we come back to average, but the swings <laughs> back and forth. And most of the nation is right in the middle. And they watch these big swings back and forth in politics and in the stock market. And 
the constant theme is when are things going to go back to normal? And I saw a, a great quote the other day, and it was unattributed, but I'm going to use it anyway. Uh, being an adult means constantly saying next week things will get back to normal <laughs> forever. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just looked up the average return of the S&P 500, the 10-year average return of the S&P 500 is 8.3%, but that includes inflation. Yeah. Inflation's run a little over 3% during that same period of time on average. So you're talking about a five, little over 5% average annual rate of return after inflation. That includes dividends from the S&P 500 reinvested, by the way. Here's the problem. If you're invested 100% in the S&P 500 in 2000, and you figure you're after inflation return, it took you 13 years to recover your value. Yep. So if, so don't get too excited about, I mean, enjoy these high returns, but don't spend them. Yeah. This is the time to recognize it's good weather, it's fair weather, make hay while the sun shines, build up your reserves. Be the ant, not the grasshopper. We actually spent a lot of time talking about this in 2019, like almost every episode in the entire year for 2019. We were saying things are going really well. There's going to be a hiccup. They have to happen. We're not ready to say be at any moment this could happen right now, but we wouldn't be surprised if we see a correction in the near future. I want to make something clear. We see nothing in the economic indicators that suggests that there's an imminent decline in the S&P 500 going to happen. Matter of fact, the yield curve is steep. The leading economic indicators are positive. Every indicator we know of says things are cool. That was not the case in 2019 when we were pointing out we were at capacity. We, we were at the a maximum speed we could go and things were breaking and we didn't have time to stop and fix them. So something was going to go wrong and we knew that was, that just was pretty positive that was the case. We didn't expect that it to be a worldwide pandemic that caused the and, entire nation and world to freeze. And we had an inverted yield curve during the year. Yeah. Which we don't have right now. We have a nice steep yield curve right now. I, you know, one of the things that is in the quarterly letter that I think is very important. We haven't sent that out yet. So if you're a client and you haven't received it, it's coming. We, uh, to use a metaphor, we're in uncharted waters. It's been a long time. I mean, a long, long time since we've had this particular set of economic circumstances occur. And we weren't measuring very well when they occurred last time. So we really don't know exactly what is going to happen, when and how. We like know like we happen. ever do know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, it's been handled very well by the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think it's been handled well by the Treasury and the Congress by infusing uh, money into the system. We basically didn't make the mistakes we made that led to the Great Depression. Right. We could have. We could have made the mistakes very easily, but they didn't. They infused money into the economy. The Fed was very accommodative in its monetary rates. But we're charging ahead and we're running into supply and, and labor constraints across the board, which hopefully will resolve themselves over the next year or two. But it's, it's, it, the point is, it's growing pains we're seeing right now. The other thing, and I think it's very important, a bull market climbs a wall of worry seems to be an almost unshakable truth for the last century. Absolutely. And there's lots of worry out there. There's lots of uh, warning of don't set your sights too high. Matter of fact, that was part of the question we're trying to answer here. Don't, uh, don't be, be aware of the fact that corrections happen. And by the way, when corrections happen, almost by definition, whatever causes them to happen is something unexpected. If it was expected, the market would have already corrected for it. Yeah, that, that is 
that's when we say it's not the thing you're afraid of that gets you. It's because if you're afraid of that thing, you've generally prepared for it. If you're afraid of mosquitoes, you're probably wearing mosquito repellent. But it might be the snake. We need some snake repellent, please. Now you need to go on to the next question. Yes. And the next one is uh, same same person. This is a quick answer, hopefully, because we got to play some commercials. John, thank you again for your uh, very faithful questioning. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Uh, the question here, it says portfolios is the subject line. Many Americans are invested in the stock market, but most probably don't know the specific categories of their portfolio. Commodities have been on a terror this year. Do a lot of investors own commodities and don't know it? Simple answer to that is not directly. No. Most Americans own part of the stock market. That makes us unique in the world. Uh, just, just as a side note, most other countries do not have a majority of their population owning the economy that they participate in. It makes America different, and it's part of the reason why the, we innovate and we, and we grow is because we're willing to invest in ourselves. Most of the people that don't know what they own or that are in that group own stuff in the stock market through some kind of an employer-sponsored plan, which falls under uh, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, ERISA. Whoa, you know that. That's yeah, cool. Well, <laughs> it's kind of basic for, for what we do. We, it's important to know that one. So ERISA says that you can't put certain things in retirement accounts. You can't put you can't do margin. That means you can't borrow money in there to buy stuff. You can't put options in there where you're, where you're buying the right to buy stuff. You actually have to own the thing that you're buying in these things. There are limited exclusions from that, but I'm kind of saying across the board. And the other thing is it's very difficult, though not completely impossible, to own commodities in a retirement plan. And the reason is because commodities aren't stocks. Commodities are actually the raw good, like copper. If you buy a contract to, for copper, most people that buy those contracts sell them at the end of the contract to someone else because they actually do not wish to have large amounts of copper delivered to their house. And really? that's... That's really what happens when you're buying commodities is you're actually buying the thing. It's not ownership in a derivative that is like a company. Uh, it is actually owning copper uh, in that contract. Once it, it, it's a contract to be delivered, the vast majority of people that own commodities in that way sell those contracts to people that actually need the copper when, when the copper gets delivered, like they're doing things with the copper. So most people do not own commodities directly. They may own companies that buy commodities. Uh, an electronics company is buying copper. They buy gold. They use that stuff in the electronics. So the extent of commodities that most people own is limited to uh, companies that are buying it for things that they're selling, which is a good thing. A lot of people own wood, though. Yes, a lot of people own wood. Though generally not as a commodity contract purchase. True. Uh, that's, that is the case. Well, I think I answered that one relatively well. The home improvement places like Lowe's and Home Depot and so on and lumber yards, 
discovered that they bought a lot of wood when it was expensive and in short supply. Yeah. Now they're having trying to figure out how to sell all that wood because demand has fallen off and the price has dropped by about 50%. So buying and selling commodities is not a good thing. Now, when you buy a stock in a company that's dependent upon commodities, a lot of times the company or mutual fund that owns the stock and the stock itself, the company owns a lot of commodities. Those are specialty companies and you need to watch out for that too. Right. So airlines are an example of that. They generally have contracts for their fuel that go out multiple years. Uh, sometimes they make bets and say, I think we're going to see the drop in the price, so we're not going to put a long-term contract in. But they can make that bet wrong. Uh, it's really famous occur- occur- occasions. American Airlines messed up on a bet, and Southwest Airlines really did well on a bet a couple of years ago, and it made big headlines. And they've each swapped places a couple of times. It's easy to be mistaken on where you think commodity prices are going. Yeah. We're gonna, if you'd like to join the conversation when we come back, our email addresses are Jeff at tpwc.com, Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach, or Jake at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other side. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff. McClure. We are the bald duo. And we get this question still after all these years, some people are still new listeners. And I hear you often referred to as my brother, which I guess spiritually is true. Uh, the one speaking right now is Jake. And the one speaking right now is Jeff. And Jeff is my father. We've been business in business together since 1991. So do you realize how long that's been? 30 years we have been working together. means I'm really old. Uh, Maybe. Since Uh, I started in the business in 1982. Yeah. So I remember when I started working with you, thinking about how long you had been running the business and how that seemed so impressive to me that you had been in business for nine years already. And... And, and how you started the business and, and joining up with you and now having been here for 30 years and knowing what I knew after working with you for nine years, I was, I'm constantly surprised at how well you managed. <laughs> well done, sir. Uh, there's a certain amount of luck involved in persistence, I think. Perseverance. And insanity. There's a large amount of insanity that's involved yeah. anytime you're working for yourself. The difference between a self-employed person and an insane person isn't. Yes, correct. Uh, the difference between self-employment and unemployment is that unemployed get money from the government. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one before, but it's true. I think I just made that up just now. So uh, I've often said the difference between a self-employed person and an unemployed person is simply a state of mind. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's true. And, and those of you that were self-employed during the pandemic, the difference between self-employed and unemployed is that your boss didn't give you a pink slip. You didn't have a pink slip to give yourself. You just uh, sat there with nothing to do for a while. Well, the nice thing about it, if you're self-employed and you can you were able to demonstrate that the pandemic caused you to be unemployed from self-employed, you actually did get some unemployment benefits this time around. Yeah, you? that's true. That is true. Or you're at least eligible for them, whether you got them or not. Which may be one of the reasons that uh, we're having trouble getting people to go back to work. Yeah, there's some a nice article in the Wall Street Journal uh, splitting out 
it left some questions, and these are the questions that I'm going to have fun talking about in just a moment. Uh, the the states that canceled the unemployment benefits early, by the way, they're not fully canceled yet. They're just saying we're going to cancel them before the September deadline. It should be in a lot of those states around the 15th of this month that it gets canceled. Those states are not seeing the same unemployment level. They're a much lower unemployment level and a lot fewer layoffs. And people look at that. The Wall Street Journal inferred from that that going stopping the benefits is what was causing that, that stopping the benefits early is why people are going back to work. And my response to that is stopping the benefits early might be the reason, except they haven't stopped yet. Uh, and it's kind of the reverse mentality, if you think about it this way, they're able to stop the benefits because people are going back to work earlier. This, it's like the cart and the horse problem here. Which one's in front? And we'll only really know about this after the fact. It's really easy to, to suppose that the benefits are keeping people from going back to work. Uh, what we're actually seeing is a change in our demographics, a change in who is working. Uh, and this is easy to look at these numbers. If you go and look at the Social Security website, or if you go and look at a lot of the other demographic, the Congressional Budget Office, uh, a lot of the demographic websites that are talking about early retirement, we had a nice smooth line kind of head, steadily heading upward as the baby boomers were retiring pre-pandemic, that line went up much steeper for about nine months into the pandemic and then kind of went back to the same angle that it had been before. People still retiring, but not in large amounts. As the companies are opening back up again and having people come back into their workforce, come back to the office, we're seeing that line steepen again. Early retirements are happening in large numbers right now because they don't want to go back to working in the office. They got used to working at home and they liked it and they felt like they had a lot more control of their own lives. And the stock market has done really, really well over the last year and they feel comfortable in saying, no, I'm done. I am not going back to work. That is a key piece that we know as part of the equation. Um, the question about child care, the question about whether or not benefits are being offered, those are still unknowns. And you can it's easy to make an opinion and tell yourself it's right. But I've just done that so many times in my life and looked back and say, oh, it, it wasn't that, that I thought for sure it was because they're stopping the benefits and that's why they're going back. Nope. There's a problem with the time sequence there and the benefits aren't over yet. And people are going back to work faster anyway. Uh, and believe it or not, people that are in on unemployment generally are not perusing the news media to see when their benefit is going to end. I know that's weird because most people would say, of course they are. And there are some people that do that. But the vast majority of people on unemployment get told something from their unemployment officer and that's it. And, and they're not told this is the deadline when it'll stop. They're not updated with that, except occasionally with a letter that they generally don't want to read because it's from the unemployment office. So just keep that in mind. We don't really know why we're having trouble hiring people right now because there's a lot of unemployed. Um, 
except that the places where the jobs are being offered are generally a long way from the places with the high unemployment. So I think that's a big thing when you see that about half of the states are cutting the unemployment benefits early because they're saying, hey, maybe it's just keeping people back, but their unemployment rates are lower. And the other states that are keeping the benefits up, um, and that could be part of the problem in that it's, those benefits are making the people stay in their state instead of move to another state to get a job. Because one of the problem, go ahead. One of the problems that was reported anecdotally by the Federal Reserve as they survey employers as to what's going on, and is also reported by the Labor Department and the Commerce Department, is that a lot of the people who used to work in restaurants, which in the low wage positions, right, have found other jobs. And the people who had who are used to getting more money than fifteen dollars an hour are not real interested in going to work at fifteen dollars an hour. So there's a tremendous shortage of people at fifteen dollars an hour across the board or lower. And and the problem is that those people are making fifteen dollars and sometimes more an hour working in an Amazon warehouse or doing deliveries for Amazon. There seems to be a shift. So there's some reasoning, there's some rationale behind this. And the, pe- the pe- many of the people who are unemployed fall into two categories. Number one semi-professional, skilled people who had a high-paying job and the high-paying job has disappeared at least temporarily and they're waiting for it to come back. Another group of people, and I think this is, this is, this is one of those unexplainable things to me, are the group who normally would be in college at this point but aren't. Right. And in many cases, they're staying home with their parents. There's like a 20% unemployment rate in the group 18 to 24, which is a big chunk of the people. Who, I, I say unemployment rate. They're not filed. They're not drawing unemployment they simply aren't working right why why are they not working well because they're staying with their parents this is the same group that was mostly hired to do that retail at the restaurant waiting job that's the group that we're seeing the high unemployment rate and it's also the group that is most sought out sought for by by restaurants to hire them back we're it's just not happening when they get hungry enough they'll go back to work yeah or when their parents got, get sick of it. Yeah. That'll happen well, eventually. I, I say go back to work. It's not really so much go back to work as it is go to work. Because in many cases, they were in school and they dropped out of school because of COVID. And they haven't figured out what they're going to do with their lives yet. And their parents are relatively well off and able to take care of them to this day. So that, that's a big chunk of what's going on. It's yeah. an unusual thing. We have about 6.8 million fewer people working now than we did in January of 2020. Which indicates there's a lot of people out there who... Yeah. Still could be working, but aren't. About a third of those are early retirees. So about 2 million people retired early in this. Uh, and when they do that, they generally tend to stay retired. When early retirement is a, especially when you've got social security coming in early, most people just stop at that point and don't go back. Um, and we're about out of time for this hour. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs> 